0: Alright, how's everybody doing today? Happy Fourth of July. I will join Sam in saying I too am relieved. I was a little worried about this service here uh, because we had a huge crowd at our Saturday night service which meant that I thought many of you, that's where you were last night which meant it would be me and my wife and a couple others of you in here today uh, in this service. But anyway, I'm glad you're here. Uh, church is a lot more fun when you're here than when I'm by myself. So uh, glad that you're here. Uh, happy Fourth of July again. Uh, listening to a guy the other day by the name of Brian Regan. You ever heard of him? Brian Regan? Uh, He said that in newspaper articles, he has noticed that authors will sometimes use the phrase, one thing led to another. And his question was, what kind of lazy writing is that? Isn't it your job as an author to tell me how one thing led to another? Uh, For example, quote, in 1900, Adolf Hitler flunked out of art class. One thing led to another, and the Third Reich marched across Poland. He's like, there's just some missing steps there. You got to fill in those gaps. The reason I I say that is because the first commandment that we are going to dive into today is the commandment um, that leads to keeping or breaking all the others. It's the one thing that leads to all the rest. And so, if you get this one, if you can get your mind around it, then you're going to find that everything else just kind of falls into place. I make a little confession here to you, and that is I was planning on skipping this commandment. I, I know, I know, but the reason is because. We did a whole sermon on it last year when we were doing the whole overview of Exodus. And I thought, you know, I don't want to do this because some of them have already heard some of this stuff. And I'm just going to give like a five-minute sort of abbreviated, you know, just real quick overview of it. Y'all, the more I get into it, I just can't. I can't do that because there is just so much that is so central and essential to the Christian life and what it means to walk with God in this commandment that I just couldn't skip it. So. Um, there's a whole sermon on it last time. If this one doesn't satisfy you at all, there's like a whole other angle on it. Go back last year and you can download it for free. Um, so Martin Luther, Martin Luther, the reformer, said that all of the commandments, all of them flow out of this one. He pointed out that the, the commandments are bookended on either end by two commandments that basically are the same thing. He said on the one end you've got this commandment to have no other gods but God, which means that ultimately you desire nothing more than God and ultimately you you trust in and you need only him to face the future he said that's on one end and on the other end he said you got the command not to covet which means you're satisfied with God and you trust him completely with what he's what's going on in your life and you're you're thankful or you're satisfied with what he's given you and Luther said if those two things are true if those two things are true then all the others of these commandments would just fall into place so all that to say I can't just skip this one to skip it would be like saying God created us to be happy and content and fulfilled. One thing led to another and now we are adultering, and lying, jealous, murdering, selfish thieves. You're like, well, wait a minute. What, what happened that makes us like that? Breaking this commandment is what makes us like that. Breaking this commandment is the one thing that leads to all the others. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want you to open them to Exodus chapter 20, which is where the Ten Commandments are found in the Bible. And we're going to read the very first one. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all of these words. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. By the way, that before me is not like Before me, as in, it's okay to have other gods, just not before me. In Hebrew, before me means literally in my presence, which means you're not to have anything else in his presence that would qualify as a God in your life. He's not wanting to simply be number one in your life. He wants to be the only one. Think of it like this. If I were to say to my my wife, Veronica, I would like, sweetheart, you know, baby, you, you are number one in my life. I will have no other wives before you. No no matter how many other wives that I take, you will always be number one. Now, that might make a pretty good setup for a Mormon reality TV show, but that's not going to make a very good marriage, right? She doesn't want to be simply number one. She wants to be the only one. When I got married, that little part of my brain that you single guys have that immediately scopes out the room when I walk into a room looking for potential mates, that got turned off right? Because I can't do that any longer because I've got not my one among many. I've got my only one. She's the only one that qualifies as a romantic love interest in my life. No other gods but God. Simple, right? Now, you may think, well, yeah, that's easy. I mean, I don't call anything else God in my life. I don't pray to anything. I don't bow down to. I don't worship anything else. I don't have any little statues in my house, so I'm pretty good with this one. Check. Let's move on to number two. And the reason we do that is because we don't really understand what idolatry is, and that's because we don't understand what worship is. So here's what I want to do today. I want to give you a definition of idolatry, and then I'm going to try to explain to you how keeping this one commandment is the key to all the other uh, areas, of diso- areas of obedience. And then lastly, I want to try to show you how you can develop obedience to this commandment. Okay, so you'll be pretty depressed when we get through the first two sections of this. Right, And then at the end, I'll give you a little life lie. Just a little one, but it'll be there, okay? It's a strong one, all right? You ready? Listen, this is the heart of Christianity. It is. This is the essence. This is the sum total of all of it. So you got to get this. you got to pay attention because this is the heart of, of everything, okay? First, a definition. Here's our definition. Number one, an idol is anything that we put in the place of God in our lives, an idol is anything that we put in the place of God in our lives. An idol is anything that you consider to be so central, so fundamental, so essential to your life that you could not imagine life without it. You see, all of us, every human being in this room, is a worshiper. Sometimes people will respond to that and be like, no, not me. I'm not a worshiper. I'm not religious. In fact, when y'all did those worship songs a few minutes ago, I was kind of creeped out. I don't worship anything. But that's not true if you understand what worship really is. Just ask yourself, what do you absolutely need to make life good? What has to be there, what has to be present in your life for you to consider life worth living? Maybe it's money, maybe it's a good job, maybe it's your retirement account, maybe it's a spouse. If you're not married, maybe it's obtaining a spouse, maybe it's getting a new spouse, maybe it's exciting romance, passionate sex, Maybe it's the achievement of your dreams and ambitions. Maybe it's recognition by others. What has to be present in your life for you to consider it a good life? What is there that without that, life would hardly even be worth living to you? Whatever that is, y'all, that's what you worship. And you daydream about it. You strive for it. You sacrifice for it. Sacrifice and worship go hand in hand, right? What you worship, you sacrifice things for. What do you sacrifice for? Like, chances are you even write songs about it, worship songs. Like, I don't believe it. Well, just turn on the radio, Kesha, because you love, you love, you love is my drug. You know what I'm talking about? I have daughters. Don't judge me, okay? All right? <laughs> Your love is my drug. I have withdrawal symptoms when I'm apart from you. That's worship. That's worship. I couldn't even live. I go into the shakes and hives without you. At least I'll feel like that for three months, and I'll get bored with you and toss you out for another guy, because that's the way we work in Hollywood, or Nashville, or wherever she's from, Okay? You know, or, or Jordan Sparks, no air. Li- I'm not even tr- going to try to sing that one, right? <laughs> Tell me how am I supposed to live in a world with no air? You're like air to me. That's worship, y'all. It's worship. I've got to have this for life to be worth living. Human beings are inescapable worshipers. We turn something in life, you will, turn something in life into something you can't live without. You can no more turn off your drive for worship by not being religious than you could turn off your drive for sex by remaining single. It just doesn't work like that, right? Or think of it like breathing. You can't just not breathe. I mean, in fact, if you were to like drown, you don't drown from holding your breath. You drown from, you get under water and you hold your breath for a while but then you lose consciousness and you suck in water. You don't drown from holding your breath, you drown from breathing in water. The question is not will you breathe, the question is will you breathe in something that gives you life or will you breathe in something that gives you death? That's the same thing with worship. You're going to worship. It's just inherent in human nature. The question is, what are you going to worship? Is it gonna give life or death? Look at how God defines worship. Go to verse five. Here, here's our definition. An idol is anything you love more than God, anything you trust more than God, anything you obey more than God. you like, well, where do you get that? See verse five, look at it. It says that God is jealous for our affection, which means, that we should love and delight in him more than we love and delight in anything else. It says that we should not serve anything else, which means there is nothing else we should give absolute allegiance to because we depend on that thing for life and happiness. You see, when you give something absolute allegiance, you serve it, it's because you feel like you got to have that in order for life to work out for you. So you serve it, you're enslaved to it, because without that thing, life would not work. You serve it. Finally, he tells us not to bow down to anything else, which means that nothing should command our obedience other than God. We should not be enslaved to our ambitions. We need to be able to let our dreams and ambitions go in a second. We should not be enslaved to our bodily desires. We should not be enslaved to the opinions of others. God's will is to be the final verdict, the ultimate influence in any and every situation. So ask yourself those three questions. What do you love the most in life? What do you love the most? What is the one thing you absolutely hold on to that you could never let go because it is your very life? Or ask yourself this. What are you most pursuing in your life? Because what you pursue most shows what you love most. Or or the way I said it last week, what you pursue most shows what you prize most. What you pursue shows what you prize. If you are most pursuing career success, and a six-digit income, and early retirement, and material achievement, then what you prize is money. If you are more diligent about academic excellence and you are more diligent in in succeeding in your job than you are in knowing God, see, what does that mean? It means that you worship something instead of God. If you stress out more about getting married than you do about knowing God, It means that you prize romance over God. You following me? What do you trust in the most? What is the one thing that is there that makes you feel most secure about the future? Or what do you feel like needs to be there in order to feel secure? About what do you say, you know, as long as I have blank, I'll be fine. Maybe it's like, you know, I can weather a lot of things as long as I keep my job. I can lose my job as long as I hold on to my 401k, I can lose my 401K as long as my wife is there, as long as I've got my family. What is there that needs to be there for you to feel secure about the future? Or maybe you think, you know, I can lose it all. As long as i got my good looks, my personality, my intelligence, I can just start over and be fine. Right? Whatever it is that you trust in as you look to the future, that's your God. Where do you turn when things go wrong in your life? Yourself. Where do you go for comforts? You turn to a bottle of alcohol, you comfort yourself with food, maybe it's some truth about yourself that you comfort yourself with. Things go wrong, you get criticized, and you think to yourself, yeah, but you know, at least I'm still smart. I got great friends. I still got a good family. You think as long as these things are there in my life, you know what, I'll be fine. One other way of asking this is, what is there in your life that losing it would absolutely devastate you? When in your life have you been the most depressed? Depressed? Chances are it was because the idol you trusted in got taken away or threatened. See, that's why you got depressed because what you trusted in was now, it was now rattled. Finally, what commands your obedience? What do you obey? What temptations can you just not say no to? Sexual desire, pornography, your appetite, can't push away from the table, sleep, can't get out of bed. All right, maybe you can't turn off your drive to make money. You, you just like, I mean, you're gone, you're, you're killing your family, you're ruining your health, but you got to get up the next rung. You can't turn off your cell phone. I mean, some of you, you just always, bam, bam. You pulled out nine times, I've been talking. I see you, yes, okay. I know you're not twittering things in my sermon. I know that, okay. You, you, you can't get away from I, I've known artists who were perfectionists, who just couldn't put a project down. Even if it meant they lost their job and ruined their family, they could not let it go because they were enslaved to their own sense of perfection. They had to have it. They obeyed that drive for perfection. I've known some who are so enslaved to others' opinions that they spend their whole lives craving affirmation, seeking it. This is like 99.8% of high school students, by the way. It certainly was true for me. You just craved other people telling me that I was great. And I would do anything. I would compromise anything. I would put myself in all kinds of danger just so people would say I was cool. It never worked, but you know, that's what I thought. I was enslaved to other people's opinions and what they thought, not what God thought, what they thought commanded my obedience. And it's not because I was a bad kid, per se. It's because I worshiped the opinions of others rather than worship God. And that's your definition right there. An idol is anything we put in the place of God in our lives. If it's anything you love, trust in, or commands your obedience more than or as much as God does. God is to be the one that we love more than anything else, the only thing we really feel like we need to face the future, and the only one who truly commands our obedience. Y'all, he is not content to be merely important to you, or an influence on you, or even a priority to you. He must be your only God. The God who consumes your heart and commands your obedience now I know that many of you are scared of that because you don't want to be a religious radical. You want God to be a small, like contained part of your life, but God is not gonna have it that way. It's like I told you, you know, earlier, if I said to Veronica, you are important to me, but you are not the only lover in my life. You give me five out of seven days, but the other two are mine. she you would never have it that way. God must be the one you love supremely, trust entirely, and obey completely. And if he is not your only God, then he is not your God at all. You see, this goes beyond. It's more than obedience to a religious checklist. The Ten Commandments are about more than just looking over a list and saying, I, you know, I, I do these pretty well. fact, like Scripture gives you two examples of two guys, both of whom kept all the commandments, but were about as different from one another as you could imagine, and one was headed to heaven and one was headed to hell. The first one is the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, it says, obeyed all the commandments, at least on the surface he did. But Jesus, who was able to see his heart, saw that even though he kept all the commandments, that he loved something more than he loved God. And so Jesus said, i tell you what, you want to follow me? Sell everything you have and come and follow me. Jesus did something, unfortunately, I can't do. He looked into the heart and he said, you will worship money more than you worship God. Now prove it, because your obedience will have a limit and a condition on it. And the young man, the young rich ruler who was religious in every possible way, he lived up to the standard, walked away because he loved money more than he loved God. Does your obedience have any conditions on it? You're like, yeah, God, I'll follow you, but I'm not going to Afghanistan. You're an idolater. And Jesus would say the same thing to you. He said the rich young ruler, same thing. Until you renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple." The other guy that's the opposite of that is Abraham. Abraham's a guy who also kept the commandments, yet when God said to him, turn over to me that thing that you love most, which in his case was his son, Abraham immediately got up, took his son up to the top of the mountain and got ready to offer him back up to God. You see, you know the point I'm trying to make here? Is that you can be extremely religious, you can keep all the rules, you can have the checklist, you can be considered a leader in your church, you can go to seminary, you can be a pastor, and still not have made God your God. Because you still depend on something besides God. For the future, you still delight in something more than God and your obedience still has conditions upon it. There's your definition. I told you you were going to be depressed, okay? All right, there's your definition. Here's what I want to show you secondly. That is, idolatry is the gateway to all the other sins. Idolatry is the gateway to all the other sins. It's the one thing that leads to the others. You see, if you look deep into just about any of the areas of disobedience in your life, you're going to find idolatry behind them, any of them. i give you a few examples here with the Ten Commandments. Commandment number eight, thou shalt not steal. What makes people steal? What makes them cheat on their taxes? What makes them do unethical things in their business and cut corners? What is that? Clearly, it's the idolatry of money. They feel like they need money to be happy. So they're compelled to break God's laws and cheat other people in order to obtain money. Idolatry is behind the breaking of that commandment. Commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. What makes a person commit adultery? What makes them betray their marriage? It's because they feel like they need sexual pleasure or emotional fulfillment to get happiness in life. And so they're willing to walk away from whatever commitment and violate whatever ethic and even God's laws in order to get sexual pleasure and emotional fulfillment. Idolatry is behind breaking that commandment. Commandment number 10, thou shalt not covet. What makes us covet? Well, there's something that we feel like we need in life to be happy, and somebody else has got it and we don't, so we covet it. Somebody else's wife, somebody else's experiences, their positions, their possessions, you're like, I can't be happy without that. And so I covet that. Commandment number nine, thou shalt not lie. What makes us lie? Well, we think a lie will benefit us more than the truth will. We so value the opinions of others that we're willing to exaggerate our accomplishments and minimize our failures if we think that will make other people think more highly of us. And it's certainly true of me. And one of the reasons I'm always tempted to lie is that I really have a problem worshiping other people's praise, and so I want to kind of hide my failures, and I want to take my few accomplishments and make them seem huge. You know, and so I will exaggerate them, I will spin them in a way that makes it just seem like I am the deal. Right, what's behind that? It's that I worship other people's praise. Another reason people lie is they don't want to face the consequences for the truth, the truth of what they've done. And so they will hide the truth about what they did because they love their comfort more than they love the consequences of truth. Again, I use myself as an example at my own peril here because my wife is sitting right here in the front row. Um, I, I, one of the places I'm tempted to lie is <laughs> I'll show up late for coming home from work. And uh, my wife will be like, why are you late? And I'll make up something about the traffic. Now, it's always a little true because traffic's always bad, right? But I always end up stretching that thing like, oh, it was terrible. You know, because I just don't want to admit to her and face her wrath that I was just too selfish But I just didn't want to quit working. I wanted to work the extra 15 minutes instead of being thoughtful and being home on time for dinner. And I don't want to hear that speech again. So I just am going to lie about how bad the traffic was, right? You see? Oh, right, like you don't do that, okay? All right, where are we? Confession. Okay, here we go. Commandment number six. (laughs) Thou shalt not murder. What makes you murderous? Well, if you trace it back, it goes back to idolatry. Somebody's made you so mad you want to kill them. And if they've made you so mad you want to kill them, it's probably because they attacked an idol in your life. They insulted you, and now only their harm will satisfy you. Or they took something you love, or they possess something you love, and you will kill them to keep them from keeping that thing from you. And by the way, don't just think of murder in terms of shoving somebody into a wood chipper, Okay? You never thought of that one, did you? (laughs) Wood chipper. Um, If you get caught, do not blame me as your inspiration, okay? Think of murder as the desire to harm someone else. You desire somebody else's harm because they messed with your idol. Again, I'm going to use myself. As a pastor, I will tell you that sometimes I find myself resenting people who are more successful in ministry than I am and I will secretly delight in their fall from ministry, or it makes me feel good when I hear somebody else criticize them. Now you know, that's ugly, but that's a form of murder. I am desiring their harm, why? Because they have a limelight that I wish I had. See, I have an idolatrous obsession with something they have. They have a success, they got a limelight that I wish I had, and so because they got it and I don't, I have murderous thoughts toward them Because I want to obtain what they have. You want to see a a place rife with this in religious circles, just go to a seminary and watch how people trash talk each other and tear other ministers down. And you go back to what the reason is usually because somebody else is successful and they have a certain success on a limelight that that person wishes they had. And so your way of dealing with that is to tear down and murder the other person verbally. It goes back to idolatry. Commandment, even even more obscure ones, like commandment number two, you should not make any graven images. It goes back to idolatry. You make a graven image of God because you want God to be a certain way rather than what he is because then the God that you have created will give you what you want. You don't want God. You want something from God. So you make God into whatever you need him to be so he'll give you what you want. For example, for example, the Bible says very, very, very clearly that adultery is wrong. And it says that you shouldn't get divorced unless there is a very specific set of criteria that are met. And if not, Jesus said, Matthew five thirty two, then it's considered adultery. That is clear in the Bible. But I have people all the time trying to justify divorce or adultery to me. And they'll usually say something like this. I'm like, well, God wants me to be happy. And so I know it's okay if I do this. Even though the Bible could not be clearer that this is wrong. They wanna be out of their marriage or married to somebody else so badly that they are willing to redefine God's word in order to be able to obtain their idol. You see how that works? Their breaking of the first commandment, which is idolatrously thinking that they need a new marriage or need out of their marriage in order to be happy rather than God, idolatry, leads them to break the seventh commandment, which is not to commit adultery, and in order to justify their actions, They break the second commandment, and that is they redefine God's word into what they want it to be. The point is, idolatry is what is behind our breaking all the other commandments. In fact, I would encourage you to look at the places in your life where you are breaking the commandments like they were smoke from a fire. Smoke that will lead you back to the altars of the idols that you're worshiping at. Listen, I don't want to just try and fix your behavior because that is a superficial, short lived correction. We've got to get to the idolatry problem at work in your heart behind your behavior before your behavior will ever truly be transformed. It's like Paul Tripp, who spoke here last spring, says, You worshiped your way into sin, therefore you got to worship your way out. In other words, it was your worship that caused you to get yourself into the sin. In order for us to get you out of it, we got to change what you worship. Because until you worship God, you will instinctively and without being able to control yourself break the other commandments. Because it's not a behavior problem; it's a worship problem. Give you another example: Matthew six, Jesus told the crowd that they should not worry about money. Why? Because money is doubting. Excuse me, worry is doubting God. Worry causes stress in your life. Worry leads you to make unwise decisions. Worry keeps you from being generous. Worry is a multi-layered sin. But Jesus, in this passage, tells you not just to not worry. He puts his finger in that passage on why people worry about money. He says, Matthew 6, 24, that you worry about money because you worship money. You look to money to do in your life what God is supposed to do. And Jesus used two great examples to make his point. I love these. He said, don't worry about money. Example number one, think about the birds. They don't worry about money but God makes them secure, so depend on God to take care of you in the future. Make God, not, make God, not money, your ultimate security. And then he said, example number two, where think about the flowers. They don't worry about money, but God makes them beautiful. You don't need a bunch of money to have beauty and significance in your life. God himself adds beauty and significance to your life. So let God, not money, add beauty. And significance and enjoyment to your life what is fascinating to me about this is that Jesus in that short passage puts his finger on the two reasons people worship money they correspond by the way to two different personality types some people look to money for security so without a lot of money in the bank and a good job they feel really queasy about the future so what do these people do well these are people who save all their money they don't spend much they stress about a rainy day like it's going to monsoon. You know, they, they got to make sure they got to have a big, fat amount in the bank, and they don't give much. Why? Because money is their security. and Without it, they couldn't feel secure about the future. Other people, other personality types look to money for beauty. They need to have the bigger house, the nicer car. They always need to be rocking the latest clothes styles. They got to have the 52-inch TV screen and the really nice vacation in order to really have any enjoyment in life. So what do these people do? They don't save money, they spend money. They can't even control it. They go into debt, they got massive credit card debt. Why? Because there's this drive in their life that says beauty and enjoyment and meaning in life comes from the things that money brings and they can't even turn off their craving and their desire to spend money. Some people save money because they need it for security, some people spend it because they need it for beauty. Here's what I've noticed as a pastor. These two kinds of people always get married to each other, right? Which is why money causes so many problems, because it's just the way God does things. He puts you together and lets you hate each other for it. And both of you hate the way the other one views money. Jesus says to both of you, your problem, both of you, is that you both worship money. You depend on money to do things that you should be looking to God to do. And that's why you worry and stress out about money, and it's why you don't give any away. That's why you're not generous, Jesus said, Matthew 6. Our CFO told me something. Listen, do you know less, less than 30% of you, less than 30% of you here in the sound of my voice give in a significant way to the ministries and what's going on here at this church. 30% or less. Now, why is that? I'm not taking an offering after this, okay? So please don't misinterpret my motive here. Why is that why is it that less than 30% of you give in a way that would be called generous? Is it because you're ignorant and you don't know what God wants? No, I mean you can't be ignorant because I'm talking about it all the time. Right? Was well, it because you don't really believe in what's going on here? No, you're here every week. I can tell you're passionate about this church. So it's not that you're ignorant, it's not that you don't believe. Here's why. Many of you can't be generous because you worship money. It's all you've got for security. It's all you've got for beauty. And so, of course, you can't give it away. You see, the real reason you don't give generously is not a giving problem. It's an idolatry problem. So let's just call it what it is. Because until we call it what it is, it's never going to fix itself. Again, I'm not taking an offering right now. That's not the point of this. The point is to try to show you that your behavior problems ultimately go back to an idolatry problem. And the reason Jesus said, Matthew 6, we can't give our money away generously is because we need it. We need it for beauty and security. We need it. And God says, you know, if you just let me be your security, if you let me be your beauty, you would find that you had needed less and you wouldn't sit around and worry and stress out about everything because I can add a beauty and a security to your life that money can never, ever break. Does this make sense? I told you one and two were kind of depressing. Number three. How to overcome idolatry. Seeing a vision of the one true God. Y'all, this is very significant. That God gives them this first command. Do not miss this. He gives them this first command right after unfolding before them an awesome display. To remind you, in case you weren't here last week, the mountain that they're standing in front of, that these Ten Commandments come out of, God had just ascended on that mountain. It was shrouded in darkness. It was consumed in fire and smoke. There was an earthquake around it. There was this sound that I told you last week that came out of it like a trumpet. It, it, you, know, you can tell Moses doesn't really know how to describe it because he says the sound just got louder and louder. I told you last week, it was kind of like if you watch the World Cup, that little like horn thing going on in the background that they need to outlaw. You know, that, that just, and just it, imagine that time's like 150. This, this thing is just, just just, I mean, it's just consuming. It's just fire and smoke and, this ear-splitting noise and earthquakes. They put a perimeter around the mountain, and God said, if you step foot across that perimeter, you will be struck dead. Out of that mountain come these commandments, and there were two things that the Israelite people standing there on that mountain, there were two things they understood about God because of that display. Number one, they understood his awesome size, right? I mean, he's the God behind all of creation. He's the God behind the earthquakes. He's the God behind the tsunamis. He's the... God behind the hurricanes and the galaxies and the nebula and the black holes he is a God who spoke the world's into existence he is a God of unfathomable size not only that you, you remind yourself that these guys had just come out of slavery in Egypt right after him mean, It's just been a couple weeks and they've gone through the remember this 10 plagues now I told you before the 10 plagues were not just random magic tricks that God did there was a system to them. In fact, each of the plagues corresponds to one of the Egyptian deities. The Egyptians worship the Nile, so God turns it to blood. The Egyptians worship the sun, so God darkens it. The Egyptians worship the cow. Thought that was the mother God to whom they owed utter devotion, okay? All right, uh-huh. So God kills the cow. The Egyptians worship Pharaoh, so God kills the son. At the end of the plague, it's like, Jehovah 10, Egyptian God, zero. What's God just done? He showed them that he's the largest authority on earth, and there is no power on earth that can stand in his presence. Not only that, they've been in slavery for 425 years, and there have been all kinds of attempts to liberate them from slavery, and God in a moment did for them what they could not accomplish in 10 generations. You know what he just showed them? I am the God who can do for you what you can never do for yourself. I am a God of unfathomable size. Second thing he showed them in that mountain was he showed them his unassailable holiness. You step foot across this line and you will die. I am a God of such purity and perfection that one sin in my presence would lead to your immediate annihilation. Be like a tissue paper touching the surface of the sun. That's what God showed him. And then out of that, mountain of terrifying power and size and holiness came this word i am the god who delivered you from slavery in egypt exodus 19 you go back one chapter he said i bore you on eagles wings and i carried you to myself because you are my treasured possession i'm the god who saw your suffering I'm the God who heard your cries. I'm the God who had compassion on you. I am the God who has tenderly loved you and cared for you. He's the God who carried them out of slavery, he says, the way a father would carry a wounded child out of the jaws of death. That's one of those scenes on the news that always moves me a little bit. because Maybe it's because I'm a father, but you see some accident. You see some bomb go off somewhere, and the news will cut too, and you see a parent, you see a dad carrying the broken, bloody body of his child as he's carrying them away from the wreckage. And it just—it does something to me, because maybe as a dad, I understand how precious my daughter's life would be to me to pick her up out of the midst of, a, of, a, of, a, of an accident and carry her to safety. God says, that's what I did to you. I picked your broken body up, and I carried you tenderly, because I am a God who cared for you. Yes, he is the God who spoke the worlds into existence. And yes, he is the God who is so absolutely holy that one sin in his presence would mean immediate death. But he is also the God who humbled himself and came to earth to save you and carried you out of the jaws of death by taking upon himself your cross and your sin. See, I'm always captivated by that phrase, treasured possession. Because when you treasure something, it means you give up anything else for it. That's that's, That's what you mean when you say you treasure it. Again, I would think of my own, my own children, uh, my, my daughters, my son. If I discovered that one of my sons or, or, or my son or one of my daughters had a disease, that the only, only way to, to cure this disease was a medicine that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and insurance would not pay for it, then without any hesitation I would sell everything that I've ever had and everything I ever will have to purchase this medicine. Why? Because they're precious. They're treasures to me. And I give up everything to be able to hold on to them. Without hesitation. You know what it means for the God of the universe to look at them? The God who has everything, the God who spoke the worlds into existence and say, you are my treasure? You're what I would turn my back on everything to obtain? That's what he's saying to them. I want you to think about that for a minute. That God of inestimable size, that God of immutable holiness, that God of tender compassion, that is a God worth worshiping, and that is a God worth giving your life to. You see, they were seeing all this firsthand. Firsthand, and they were overwhelmed with his glory in that moment. So naturally, their hearts would not have gone after lesser, inferior gods. In fact, the Hebrew word for glory is, I told you, an incredibly important word. The word chabod in Hebrew literally means weight. For something to have glory in your eyes means it has great weightiness. When God has glory in your eyes is when God has so much weight to you that he outweighs your desire for and outweighs your dependence on everything else. Most Christians struggle to obey the commandments and to not chase after idols because they suffer from a severely diminished view of God. They don't give glory to God. They don't give weight to God because they don't see God's glory. They don't feel the weight of his glory in their souls. And here's the thing. This is the irony. We think, we think we're doing God favors by shrinking down his size and making him more packageable for everybody. This is like yuppie God. This is God for you if you live in the suburbs. This is God for you if you're a Republican. No! You don't shrink him down. We, We try to minimize things like his holiness and his wrath. We're embarrassed about truths like hell. In fact, most of us inwardly think that hell is unjust. You know why? Because we don't think sin is that bad. We're like, come on, God. I mean, seriously, Adam and Eve eating a little forbidden fruit over here on one side, but like imagine a scale. Adam and Eve over here eating this little forbidden fruit, and hell on the other one? Come on, that's sort of an overreaction, right? I mean, I mean, it's like you, know, like you stole it for bread, and the judge is like, off with your head. And you're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. That's kind of an overreaction. The reason we feel that way is because we have no sense of how large and awesome the God is that we sinned against. Scripture says that the weightiness or the glory of God is such that all the nations are like dust on the scales with him. That's from the book of Psalms. Just like a fine layer of dust that wouldn't even affect the scales at all. You put that on one side, all the nations of all the people who have ever lived, they're on one side. And you put God on the other. It says, This is like dust. It's no comparison. God's weightiness and His glory is overwhelming. His weightiness and His holiness and perfection is such that sin against Him requires an infinite penalty. The wrath of God against us in hell is not unjust. The wrath of God against us in hell is exactly to the ounce in proportion to what we deserve. Hell is what hell is because sin is what sin is. And hell is what hell is because God is the size that he is. A sin against an infinite God requires an infinite punishment. That's why scripture tells us about hell so frequently And that's why it describes the details of the cross to us so exquisitely. It is not because God is trying to scare us, per se, because God can't scare us into loving him. It's not because God's trying to gross us out, because God can't gross us out into loving him. He shows us that stuff because the cross and hell show us the size of the God that we have offended and the size of the God who calls us to himself. And when you see his size, then you can begin to understand what Christ had to go through to save us. You see how great his love is for you that he absorbed into his body on the cross the infinite wrath of God for your sin, the just and righteous wrath. He loved you tenderly and carried your broken body like a father would carry a child and absorbed it into himself. And when you see the size of the God who loves you, And when you see how great his love is for you, then and only then will you be driven away from lesser idols. Seeing God in all of his size and his holiness and his immeasurable love is the only thing that can fill up your souls to the brim with holy, life-satisfying, soul-sustaining pleasure. You see, my desire today is not just to tell you, stop being an idolater. My desire is to tell you, behold your God. Because beholding your God, sensing the weight of his glory, is the only way to escape idolatry. It is the only thing that makes your attraction for the lesser gods fade away. Jesus told a parable, one of my favorite parables. It's like three sentences long. I think in Greek it's one sentence. So the kingdom of heaven, finding God is like this. He compared it to a man that's walking along through a field. As this man's walking along the field, he stubs his toe and turns around notices something sticking out of the ground he's never seen before. So he, he starts to dig around that thing sticking out of the ground. The more he uncovers it, he realizes it is a treasure that nobody knows is there that has been buried for hundreds of years, and it is worth unspeakable value. Now, one of the things I love about Jesus' parables, you ever notice this? A lot of the characters in Jesus' parables are actually pretty shady people right? This is one of those cases, because, uh, kid you not, so what does the guy do? Because the, the field belongs to a buddy of his. What's he do? He's go tell his buddy, like, hey, man, I found this in your field. No, the guy, he covers it back up, goes over to his buddy. He's like, hey, man, want to buy your field. God's like, why would you want to buy my field? And I don't know. <laughs> just like, you know, I like it, the trees and the dirt and the grass. I just love it. God's like, well, man, it's my family's field. I can't sell it to you. Guy's like, come on, man, just any name your price, any price. So the guy quotes him some price because it's definitely a seller's market at this point. And the guy's like, all right, eight hundred thousand dollars for my one acre field. The Guy's like, done. The guy can't believe it. The, you know, the boy, the guy thought he's gotten an unbelievable sucker who's buying his field. And the guy goes off, and in Jesus' story, he says he sells everything he's ever had or ever will have, mortgages his entire existence. So he can buy that field and then Jesus puts two little words in there that interpret the whole parable for you. For joy. Why? Because he is so unbelievably moved by the value of what he's getting that letting everything else go seems like nothing compared to the weight of the value of what he has. Jesus said finding God's like that. Finding God's not about keeping commandments that, you know, that suddenly, okay, make you better in God's sight. Finding God." is finding something or someone of such inestimable value that you gladly, for joy, turn your back on everything so that you can obtain that one thing. But you think for a minute that that treasure in that field is a God who treasured you. You see, if you could see that, if you could see that, I wouldn't have to compel you to stop being an idolater. Behold your God. Who wouldn't turn their back on everything to obtain that treasure? You see, Israel saw that. They had it firsthand, which is why they had no problems with this. And they said, of course, that's what we'll do. If you're having trouble, it's because you haven't ever seen that. Let me just sort of tell you the irony here. You know that very quickly, in fact, within a few weeks, Israel would forget this vision And they would turn their back again on God. I imagine probably some of you are like that. Your heart wanders, and the reason is because you can't see God. You go, well, how do I see God? That's why, listen, we always preach the gospel here at our church. That's why you need to saturate yourself in it. Because this mountain, I have told you, is actually a picture to us of a much more important mountain. This Mount Sinai that was covered in darkness and smoke and earthquakes and fire and thunder and lightning and all that stuff? A couple thousand years later, Jesus Christ would die on a mountain that was covered in darkness and smoke and thunder as the lightning of God's wrath tore into his body as the earth shook underneath him, as the fire and the terror of God's wrath went into his heart because Jesus was being struck dead for where you and I had trespassed. God's commands and if that vision would be there in your eyes if you would see that at the cross God gave himself for you if that would stay close to your heart you would behold your God then you would lose the attracting power of lesser gods like money and sex and recognition and fame and anything else you want to put in the blank behold your God behold your God I want you to bow your heads, if you would, on all of our campuses. Bow your heads. For those of you in this room that God has opened your eyes, maybe you see your sin before God. You have an overwhelming sense of Your idolatry and your wickedness, that is probably one of the greatest things that could ever happen to you. Because that's God opening your eyes. The scripture says, 1 John 1 9, that if we will just confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Acknowledge your sin before God and let God cleanse you. Some of you in here have never received Jesus as your Savior, you've never received Jesus as your Savior. You don't have a relationship with God. You see, the gospel is that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins so that whosoever would receive him, believe in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Right now, you can receive him. Right now, turn over control of your life to Jesus and receive his gift as yours. Receive him as your Savior. Maybe you're in here and you don't feel any of this. You know you're not seeing God. You don't feel conviction. You don't feel love and delight in Him. Why don't you just pray right now? God, open my eyes. God, open my eyes. God, let me see. God, let me see. If you're a believer and you are like, I I am a believer. I know I've accepted Jesus, but how? I mean, why does my heart, why does it so quickly lose the sight of God? Martin Luther said, all of a Christian's life is repentance, all of it. Repent and be forgiven again. God, open our eyes. Open our eyes. Overwhelm us with your size, your holiness, and your grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.